everybody to the podcast Let's Talk Synesthesia with me, your host. I'm Maike Preising. I'm a psychologist, designer and synesthesia artist. We're starting the season off with, <laughs> with one of the probably biggest, biggest guests, which is Dr. Joelle Salinas. I'm going to talk about that in a second. I think one question is probably, why do you do seasons? Why do you not just just keep them coming the way you want to you know just do just keep them coming <laughs> and I think the reason is I like a good structure also looking back things make sense differently than when you plan them so when I was when I started with the podcast I had no idea where it would go uh, if I would enjoy it if I would feel you know happy with it brave enough um, if I would enjoy myself And then it just felt really good to have episode number 10 where we were looking back on the season and then I had a bit of a break and uh, wrote down all the improvements I want to make in order to have a product that is actually as good as I want it to be. Yeah, over the summer break, I again wrote down all the things I want to keep and improve and there is one big thing (laughs) that I uh, wanted to change and I did and I'm incredibly excited about it. Um, If you haven't If you haven't seen it on Instagram already, I'm going to tell you here, I got myself a co-host for this season and I'm so happy about it. (laughs) I'm so happy about it. Um, There are a couple of reasons for that. Um, One reason is that I really want a space where I can process the information I learn on the other episodes and also what I read online. And a lot of that just really ties into my daily life and how I perceive my synesthesia and how it changed like it's so much more nuanced than it was before I'm discovering so many things and I do think that those observations can be really helpful when they are shared um, but they don't really have much space in a guest interview so what we're doing this season is I have one guest interview um, and then every other week I'm going to meet my co-host, Zoe, that I will introduce in a second. And then, yeah, for the synesthesia chat, as I called it, with Zoe, we're just going to chat about whatever comes to mind. For example, daily situations where synesthesia made something more difficult or easier or funny. (laughs) We talk about the effect of alcohol and music and clubs and sex and just whatever comes up related to synesthesia and neurodiversity. So I'm really excited about that. And um, as I'm recording this intro here, I already we've already recorded two of the Synesthesia Chat episodes. So you're in for a treat. <laughs> and as always, we highly appreciate it if you interact with us over the Spotify poll. If you just want to um, leave a comment, feedback or a question, or you can also do that over Instagram. Leave us a DM, comment under one of the posts regarding that episode and then we can all have a good conversation about the things we share okay so who is my co-host Zoe is from Singapore she is roughly my age we're from the same generation but we grew up in in a very different cultural environment with the same disposition of having synesthesia Um, I think it's really interesting to have 
like two women chatting about it that grew up on other sides of the planet. She now lives in Japan and she's an English teacher, an artist and musician. Um, she does a lot of great educational videos on her Instagram account, which is Soesthesia. Uh, so go check that out. Yeah, and I'm, I hope you're going to enjoy our much more giggly conversations <laughs> about synesthesia in daily life. So that's that. If you want to book a coaching session with me, please use the contact form on my website. This is www.mikepricing.com. Uh, if you don't know how my name is spelled, that's fair. <laughs> you can find it in the show notes as well or over the link in my Instagram bio. Like I mentioned before, I'm a psychologist and I offer virtual neurodiversity coaching for mainly late diagnosed adults with all sorts of neurodiversities. Every topic is welcome. We're going to work around the topic that you bring to the coaching. But I do want to offer psychological support, especially for synesthetes. So if that's you and you want to book just a free introductory session, go ahead and do that. I'm so excited to meet you and work with you. And if you want to go ahead and um, do a couple sessions, let's say one, two or three, um, that's possible. But then there are also packages for five or 10 or more sessions. I'm so enjoying that job and I can really see the impact. Um, and yeah, just it's just amazing to see how understanding your neurological makeup helps you so much in improving, you know, your life quality and your mental health. And I think for someone who has intense synesthesia, trying to improve mental health without ever looking at synesthesia is actually quite quite difficult, I would say. Because, you know, our brain is a reality-creating machine and it really impacts every aspect of our life. If we want to look at how well we cope with this busy world, we also have to understand how our senses are crossed and what that what that means for us practically psychologically emotionally um physically okay so let's dive into today's episode with dr joelle salinas it was such a lovely conversation i enjoyed it so much we uh, exchanged ideas about papers we want to talk about beforehand and then life got really busy for both of us and I mean, he knows all the papers anyway, but I didn't have the time to read them all. Um, so I was a bit unprepared. <laughs> and what happened was actually something really, really lovely, which is it's a very personal conversation, which I'm always down for. Yeah, we're going to see a bit of a different side of Joel. If you don't know him, maybe you want to watch uh, one of his TV show appearances or a TED talk, or you want to have a look into his book on mirror touch synesthesia. He's a great guy and I'm so, so grateful he joined me for this episode. So enjoy and see you next week with the synesthesia chat. Thank you so much. Okay, let's just dive into it. Welcome everybody. Welcome back to the first episode of the third season. I'm so excited and I couldn't be more excited about today's guest, which is Dr. Joel Salinas. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. So nice to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and to share your story and your research and also to chat about your book. Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So you are a behavioral neurologist and researcher at NYU Lagoon Health 
and you are the chief medical officer at Isaac Health, uh, which is an online memory clinic. That's right. And you're the book author of uh, Mirror Touch, and you are, which is also very important for this podcast, a synesthete, not only Mirror Touch synesthesia, but I think if I'm correct, you also have auditory synesthesia and you also taste words. Is that correct? Um, it's a bit of a hodgepodge, ultimately. So, yeah, some one of the things I, I I share with people is um, you know, the idea of types of synesthesia is something that's almost very much like an artifact of research. Because as a yeah. as, especially as a cognitive neuroscientist, you need to operationalize things so you can study one specific phenomenon at a time. Um, and so I think that gives people the impression that maybe it's just one channel or one direction or like specific types of sensory pieces. And that's certainly the case for, for some people. But I think if, if you go down to the deeper kind of neuroscience kind of behind it, um, it's a lot more to do with connectivity. And if you have kind of widespread differences in connectivity, I think you're more likely to kind of see how things are just kind of like uh, mashed potatoes. It's <laughs> just all, all mixed together. No, I love that you say that because that describes my experience so much more than collecting forms. Yeah, yeah, that's why I like to share that. Can you explain that a bit further? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think um, when, you know, there there's this really interesting thing that can happen when we learn a new word, right? Um, is that you begin to notice that thing more and more. Um, especially for a new concept or a new idea. Like if you learn that like the tip of a shoelace is an aglet, you'll start to pay it more attention to like the end of like laces. Um, and similar with synesthesia, when people first learn the term for it, especially if they identify with it, it kind of opens up kind of their whole world that it's good for me. Um, but then um, the more I learned about kind of synesthesia and I went into synesthesia kind of community kind of threads the more I saw the people would spend a lot of time talking about types. And for some reason, it just no single label really fit with me. And it felt like collecting many different types also didn't feel very authentic because I just felt it, it was just so much more fluid kind of in practical reality. And so, you know, one of the things I actually studied when I was an undergrad was um, it's called biology and society, but basically is how society influences science and, and vice versa. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's an excellent example of it, which is that, you know, researchers provide a, a framework of like labels for these things and then people kind of take it up. But that also kind of can create kind of maybe the a, a impression of oneself that isn't necessarily true to their lived experience. Um, so for me, it's, it's a little bit more blended, especially when it comes to kind of this element of, of connectivity. So in, um, this is something you see a lot in people who identify as being neurodivergent. Um, and it's something that's been seen in research um, in kind of specific um, kind of groups of people. This is going back to the idea of groups, right? Like people who have ADHD, people who are on the autism spectrum disorder, people who have kind of um, are on the obsessive compulsive spectrum, that there are, there are certain kind of clusters of these that kind of blend together. And I think if you get down to the science of it, it's oftentimes related to connectivity to different areas of the brain. So um, an example in autism spectrum um, individuals, the um, you tend to see a greater amount of local connectivity and, and uh, decreased kind of connectivity kind of uh, 
over longer distances in the brain, uh, mm-hmm. which researchers kind of use to kind of explain some of the some of the phenomena or some of the experiences in someone who has autism. And I think you can see things like that in, in synesthesia as well. And it's really just kind of kind of connectivity based. And you know, the brain is is messy, right? You know, the the brain and science they aren't uh, really, you know, it's they're not there to make sense to us. Um. <laughs> yeah, it feels messy for sure. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I really like that. So, would you say there maybe more two groups of people for the one that it, it's very blended and like mashed potatoes, but there is also a group of people that could just say, "No, I only have grapheme color synesthesia, quite isolated. I only have that. I don't have any taste sensations." I would even blur the lines even further there, right? It's like maybe for some people some sensory connections are a little bit more distinct for them than, than others. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's just like one type or a couple of types. I mean, th- that may be the case for some people, for sure. Um, but I think um, I think if people really spend time kind of reflecting on their synesthesia, so they may notice that they're me- the things may be a little bit more blurry. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. It definitely feels blurry to me. So that's really reassuring. I really like that. It still makes sense to have these forms and types to just understand the topic and, like you said, mm-hmm. to research it. But the yep. lived experience is quite different. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you became quite famous about your work on mirror touch synesthesia as a doctor who can feel patients' pain, which is well, very intense experience um and you wrote a book about it and i just have a couple questions about your own experience and um we also got questions from uh listeners that i would ask you at the end so yeah we're just gonna see where where the journey takes us okay so uh, i think one first question could you could you define mirror touch synesthesia for us we spoke about it on a previous episode but I think it would be really good to to have a, a quick definition from an expert. Yeah. I would say the easiest way to understand mirror touch synesthesia is the, whatever the, my brain experiences or sees uh, of another individual, um, it try, tries to really recreate that to a level so vivid and intense that it feels as if it's also happening to me at the same time. Um, so somebody who kind of gets kind of punched in the left arm as I'm looking at them, I'll feel it in my right arm. So that's kind of where the mirror piece comes in. Um, but um, it also kind of extends to kind of emotional experiences and, and other kind of much more subtle things that could be going on with an individual and it's not always just based on sight. It could also be kind of auditory and all the other senses. Because it, it is going to go, going back to kind of what we we're talking about before, kind of the the danger of kind of simplifying things too much kind of begins to exclude the opportunity to kind of see things in a bit more fluid and blurry way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one other way that, that people can understand um, mirror touches, think of it as kind of like a an extreme form of of empathy at least uh, one type of empathy that would have been my next question is 
to call maritime synesthesia is that just convenient because it's like very easy to understand that something we all experience is put to an extreme or is that neurologically speaking the case that it is it looks like extreme empathy yeah the 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 degree to which people experience empathy who have mirror touch um, has been researched and i think one of the things is that empathy is also a really complicated concept um because there's different forms of of empathy there's like like cognitive empathy which is like thinking focused there's affective empathy which is emotion focused and we can dive like really down a deep rabbit hole around what an emotion is um and then there's kind of like empathic pain or somatic empathy i think for the the average person who is labeled as having mirror touch from a researcher standpoint um their experience is more likely to fall in the category of like somatic empathy So it's it's like mm-hmm. much more mechanical. There's like one person put it um it said it's um it's like not like feeling with your heart it's feeling with your body. Mhm. That's also a good way to put it. Yeah. But these things, you know, it's um because we can't really separate things out. Like you can have a physical experience um and yeah. that can certainly affect your emotional state. So it's it's easy yeah. to kind of for these things to blend together, but the actual neuroscience of it may be one entryway. or a series of entryways um but when we actually put language to it we always try to use kind of words and frameworks that are easier for the average person to understand but the deeper down the rabbit hole you go the the wilder things get <laughs> yeah absolutely and so you wrote a book about maritime synesthesia which now helps a lot of people that discover they have maritime synesthesia and it gives it gives other synesthetes this um physical resource like collected resource and a personal experience um to understand and to talk about it more and to not feel shame about it which is amazing and on another episode where we spoke about mirror touch synesthesia we spoke about exactly that someone who found your book and found it an amazing way to understand themselves and was really eye-opening um so now As amazing as it is that you provide that to so many synesthetes today, did mm-hmm. you have something similar when you found out you had mirror touch synesthesia or were you pretty much without any resources? What what's Oh yeah, well, I mean it's um it's like the history of things is um you know, sometimes it's a it's a few people, things kind of then die out and then they come back and then it just takes Or the right situation be in place for more and more people to really kind of take it up. Um yeah. The the history of synesthesia as I'm familiar with it and there there's certainly people who can speak more eloquently um to this who have researched kind of like this the history of synesthesia. But you know, I think the the basic strokes of it is kind of thinking about psychology and the study of human behavior things used to be a little bit more kind of abstract and really interested in kind of the, the lived experience of people, but then moved more towards behaviorism, which was more of a focus on basically if I can't see it, then I can't measure it. Um, and so that's when the field of psychology moved a lot more towards these kind of experiments that focus on just what you could see. Mm-hmm. So synesthesia kind of, even though it had initially been talked about and some, some cases had already been documented, In terms of the research, 
and it went from uh, behaviorism. It was only until maybe like the eighties where we began to be able to image the brain with first yeah. CAT scans, then MRIs, and then we were able to do functional MRI scans looking at brain activity. I think that's when the shift really happened, was when we could really study it. People took a real interest in it. And one of the early people was uh, Dr. Sidewick or Saitovich, mm-hmm. who is a neurologist who kind of studied this in, in some patients. And then other neuroscientists kind of took it up. And then it, it eventually became more and more popular as more people kind of studied it. You know, it's only... I want to say like the early 2000s where these kind of constructs really began or these concepts began to really take shape. I believe it was only like 2006 when the first kind of case of someone with mirror touch was documented. And that person Mm -hmm. was somebody that was kind of in a kind of cognitive neuroscience classroom. The professor kind of asked like who here may have synesthesia based off of the description of the blending of the senses. And like some people raised their hand at the end of the class Somebody came up to the professor and said, hey, you know, I have this thing. I don't know if it's really synesthesia, but when I see people being touched, I feel like I'm being touched. And then they said, oh, let's let's study it and, and see. So by, by the time that I had learned kind of the term synesthesia, which was kind of very lucky that, it, that somebody happened to like bring it up and then it kind of just like set off like an atomic bomb in my head. <laughs> I looked it up using scientific literature and there was a lot more in the scientific literature than was kind of in the mainstream. There were certainly some people, biographies on the subject. You know, I think it's specific to mirror touch. I really hadn't seen many, many, if any people, but I mean, once, once I started to, once, once I shared my story uh, about it, which kind of happened very serendipitously as well, um, it was a, a journalist who was interviewing one of the scientists that was studying me. Um, the scientist mentioned, oh, there's this like person who is also a doctor. And the journalist was like, oh, that's a really interesting story. Let me go meet with them. And, you know, they were, this journalist mm-hmm. you know, provided a lot of reassurance that they would do justice to, to my story. And I was really, really nervous about, you know, actually being public about it because it is. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, I was already kind of early in my career and, you know, I'm in the medical profession and, and it's also like the scientific profession where kind of your reputation and your image actually, you know, it does matter. And it's uh, the reputation that carries the most value is that of like someone who's very serious um, and yeah. you almost, almost like a waffle. You don't want to stand out too much, right? Because then, then people kind of call you out. You're less likely to get access to opportunities. Um, I feel like you want to stand out when it is studied enough and like you can (laughs) just say well just look it up and then that's cool but before that it's quite quite risky and like it can be quite shameful because you you don't know what it is but it's so vulnerable and it's so close to yourself it's so personal and then putting that on tv exactly I mean I think at least for myself I had done enough kind of like research, like like reading through all the scientific studies that were out. And I knew how to evaluate a scientific paper, right? I could see what a study was, how many participants there were, what were the tools that they used. And I could get a sense of how confident you could be in the claim that was being made. Um, and I felt like there's enough scientific literature out there. And the, the, the scientists that are doing the research are like well-respected researchers in the field. But I felt like, you know, I, I would just take this big, risk this big leap that 
you know, I would share this. And if people really wanted to dive into the research of it, I could support it, right? But if people just yeah. wanted to hear, like, whatever the media kind of described it as, or they wanted to kind of take their own interpretation of it and kind of make a judgment on it without going into the research, that's fine. That's that's up to them uh, to do. Because you know, for me, it was really just about helping to open up of the possibilities of what a human experience could be like for others and for other people that didn't really fit into the neurotypical box give them an opportunity to also kind of see themselves as well so they know that they weren't alone right yeah and maybe there'd be an opportunity for them just kind of like it was for me when i heard the term synesthesia for the first time that it might set off an atomic bomb in their mind as well yeah so I saw a couple of your the TV shows you were on um, and I loved hearing you speak about it. And I think they ask great questions, but they almost use you like as a party trick. <laughs> it was yeah. so funny to watch. They were like, look at the audience and tell us who has which pain. And I'm really actually surprised that you don't even have to speak to the audience to feel it in your own body. I think that's astonishing. So yeah, what, what's what's that experience like, just going into a TV show and then someone asks, huh? Oh, I mean, it varies <laughs> a lot because it depends on the on kind of the kind of where where you're like what the van, what the venue is essentially, what the setup is. You know, sometimes yeah. it's like very well researched, very methodical. People really want to do um, kind of justice to the story and really honor it. And I think that's something that's more typical of long form media yeah. right where you, like like a podcast right um um where you can go into things and you can kind of um take your time and not w worry so much about being very attention grabby um yeah and being a, a spectacle but then there are some situations where like that's how that's how they stay on air right is they create a spectacle um and it feels like you're being shot out of a cannon and you're just kind of like okay here we go <laughs> what's gonna happen i mean it is the the coolest party trick I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I completely understand that they did it. I just haven't seen synesthesia presented in that uh, in that way, but I I've, I found it really fascinating. Um, so I I feel like I have to ask about you and your work with patients, and um, I know there are a lot of great stories of how you used and still use your mirror touch synesthesia when mm -hmm. meeting a patient and how you feel when a patient is dying and how you're so becoming one with the other person. Mm -hmm. So I guess one question would be if you could tell us a bit about the experience of working in a clinic with patients. And the other question, um, if it's not too personal, would be how does it feel to only be yourself? Because mm. I don't have the physical mirror touch experience but I get can be very much uh can feel the other person's emotion and it could take mm -hmm. over me and as a psychologist like that's what I work with mm -hmm. um and then I have to get go blah, and then I have to go home and like try to get rid of other people's emotions right and I, mm -hmm. I feel like that's the same for you but on multiple levels so maybe you can tell us a bit about your your experience as a doctor yeah it's um I think seeing patients, it I, I would say it definitely helps me connect with patients on a deeper level in a, in a shorter amount of time. 
And I'm very grateful for that. And I know my patients are generally very grateful for that as well. Um, but it certainly varies, you know, from situation to situation. I think in, in some scenarios, um, it can be really powerful, like being able to be in an intimate space kind of with a patient really, really feel that they're being seen and heard that someone's really present with them. Um, um, and then in some situations it can be very intense with somebody who's like agitated or combative or kind of psychotic or who's experiencing a lot of pain, um, or just like very anxious. Um, but I think I've been through enough of of the wide variety of situations at this point out of my training and really kind of having this mentality of anything that's uncomfortable rather than running from it, running toward it, um, that mm-hmm. I've gotten a lot of experience and figured out a lot of, you know, the grounding type of techniques that really work for me and how to kind of m- mentally kind of sort out those differences, especially when I, when I, when I need to, but I also am aware of times where, of that ability is just kind of worn down like I'm very sleepy very tired I've been like very stressed out I'm like over caffeinated um uh, those types of situations can be particularly intense just because it's harder to get get access to those kind of grounding techniques when Mm -hmm. I need them um but um I think it overall it is it is been been really great and really helpful and even just like with like teaching because I do a lot of teaching for medical students and residents mm-hmm. um I think it helps them learn a lot more and we can be a lot more real with each other about kind of the clinical situation that's going on and kind of the, the teaching situation that's going on mm-hmm. um to your question about um uh kind of the experience of just being myself and only myself yeah. that, that's a great question I actually, I don't think I've ever gotten that question before, but it, it's it's a question that um, that's relevant to kind of like my, my own lived experience, which is, um, you know, when it's just me, it's you know, it's not that often when it's just me. Um, yeah. But what I what I really like about those experiences, that things are just so much more quiet and a lot calmer. Um, my brain kind of will naturally still take on some of that um kind of nebulous kind of feel the physical experience of the things that are around me even if they are inanimate so like a lamp or a pool or which is it's different from some people who have mirror touch um mm-hmm. but the more human it looks the more intense it, it becomes yeah. but it, even just kind of like sitting in a room like lamps and spheres and desks like those things are kind of like being scanned kind of my, yeah. by my brain and creating that physical experience. But it does it just end up being kind of just because it's happening so much. It's just kind of like noise, just like white noise. Yeah. Um, but it is just so grounding to kind of be in a space by myself. I mean, one of the things I, I did um, when I was going through a tough time, I, um, uh, I had just moved into a new apartment and uh, to help kind of ground myself because I really needed something more. And I, I, I kind of, being familiar with kind of like the brain and the nervous system and kind of how we function, I knew that how important environment is. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like whatever vessel you put the brain in, it's it's a little bit more like a fluid. It takes the shape of that of that vessel. And so, um, in my in apartment that I moved into, I made sure that there were a lot of mirrors. And um, having a lot of mirrors was really great um, because I I would see myself 
and it would help to kind of reinforce my own physical experience or remind me of, of my own and things felt less nebulous. Um, and that was nice. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So a mirror is a bit like the physical experience of meditation. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like you really feel yourself? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it reinforces kind of my actual, like, what we call, it's called like interoception in your own purpose. I'm just kind of like your own perception yeah. of your own, of your own nervous system, of your own body. I mean, I, I think that's one of the re reasons why I also really like exercise and working out. I mean, everybody yeah. has their own reason for working out. For me, it's the mindfulness of like paying attention to your own body that really helps to kind of build up that part of my, my brain that's really better able to distinguish between kind of the self and the other. Yeah. Would you say you feel better or more yourself or more quiet, quite noisy in your own apartment or in a forest or maybe somewhere else, maybe underwater? Mm, um, I think underwater, actually. Um, yeah, I think there's something, and I think the more self for me actually feels more diffuse, actually. It's just kind of like, it's both solid and kind of liquid, kind of like mm -hmm. a ish all at the same time. So then it goes back to that kind of like blendy, blurry, fluidy quality. Um, And I think in water, there's just kind of like physical sensation kind of everywhere you are that feels really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that. Man, I could talk to you for hours, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, we don't have much time left. So uh, I'm just going to ask you one question we got from a listener, if that's okay, even though yeah. it is a bit of a... Uh, topic jump but I don't want to hold you back from your next appointments um, and this is actually a, a story or a situation that is very important to me personally because I know the person it was a colleague of mine a friend of mine who is a mirror touch synesthete and he mm. has very very bad migraine with aura attacks and in one paper I saw that mirror touch or tactile synesthesia and um, aura migraine was associated, but they didn't really know much about it. Mm. Um, so I wanted to ask you if, if you know anything about the theory, if, is there any connection? Do you think they, they are connected? They might be. This is now kind of N of two, because I actually do have migraine with, with aura, specifically visual oh, do aura. you? Yeah. Oh. Um, Fun. and <laughs> it's, um, Yeah, it can be wild sometimes. I mean, it really is disabling because you just can't. I mean, you get the, the the positive phenomenon of the migraine first, which is kind of like what people call the scintillating scotoma, uh, okay. like zigzags and kind of like kaleidoscopy type patterns. Um, yeah. But then um, I'll get a visual field deficit, so like I lose one half of my visual field, um, and. Uh, one, it definitely helped me better understand the experience of somebody who lost the visual field as a neurologist. Um, but really, it's like it's not like darkness; it's like an absence. Like that part of the world just doesn't exist. Um, wow! But uh, the um, yeah, I think there may be something related to kind of um, I mean, people people who are more prone to migraines. They're called like migraineurs sometimes. But there is something about their nervous system that is. Um, 
that, that some research believe that there is something different there. Just that they're like more prone to some of these kind of more interoceptive or like hyper or hypoactive kind of experiences with these like mm-hmm. fluctuations. But at least for visual aura and migraine, I mean, it corresponds to the occipital lobe, which is the kind of vision area of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for me, when I lose vision, like for example, in my less visual field, it's not that long after I get um, intense kind of pain in the right occipital, the right kind of occipital part of my brain, which corresponds to that mm-hmm. visual area. So there's something about like connectivity, most likely, as well as pro- probably vascular flow of perfusion. You might get like vasodilation, like the blood vessels getting bigger around that area or having issues with constriction that leads to that kind of pain that you can get. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I think someone who's more likely to be, well, somebody who's neurodivergent is more likely to have these types of things. And that's also seen in, in, other, in other experiences in, in other areas, kind of like uh, people who are on the autism spectrum are oftentimes more likely to have gastrointestinal issues um, that are more oh, kind really? of almost like nervous system based than they are kind of physical kind of stomach viscera and intestine based. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, everything's connected in the body in some way. Um, and it makes sense that if, um, you know, you, if, if your brain is a little different than the average person, that you'll have physical experiences that the average person might not be super familiar with. So is there, looking at the brain of a person with aura migraine and a person who has synesthesia, is like, I don't know, maybe it's a stupid question, but is it like similar? <laughs> Or is it? Is there an overlap of uh, one trait of the whole thing? I would speculate that there's some overlap um, mm. there that relates to something kind of structural going on in the brain, whether it's like the connectivity or the development of that area or the blood vessels that feed into it or all of the above. And for you personally, if you expose yourself more to other people's pain and you like your tank of feeling other people's pain is quite full are you more likely to get a aura migraine that day Hmm, that's interesting i don't know that i've necessarily had that specific experience but Mm. i mean i would be more likely i mean i think the combination the, the types of things that make me more prone or the average person to be more prone to migraine are also the same things that make those experiences more intense and harder to control. So like lack of sleep, kind of like issues with like caffeine, like certain certain foods, like just basically the the, the like there's something at a at a neural level that's going on in terms of how the mm-hmm. neurons are and the supporting kind of cells are like relating with each other that make it just more more intense. So there could be some bi-directional piece to it. I mean, that's a great research question. Well, <laughs> I leave it to you though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I have to let you go. So you managed to get to your next appointment. Um, I'm so, so grateful for you to be on. It was super helpful, super interesting, and just great to, to chat and, and get to know you better. Thank you so, so oh, much. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much for what you do. Oh, 
Thank you for saying that. That's really kind. <laughs> okay, have a lovely day and sending my love to New York. Yeah, and speak soon. All right, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Let's Talk Synesthesia. There will be a new episode of Series 1 every Tuesday. If you enjoyed listening, you can like, follow and share. Details about the podcast and how to connect with today's speakers can be found in the show notes. The executive producer was Micah Pricing with music by Corinne Anderson and the podcast was supported by a couple more neurodivergent people in the background. See you next week.